We continue this morning in our sermon series about uh, how we live in a culture and world that's been intrinsically shaped by the Christian faith, but tends to uh, fail to connect those, those values uh, back to Jesus uh, himself. And so the goal these weeks uh, is uh, to recognize the values established by Jesus uh, lead us to become better reflections of our Savior and representatives of his kingdom in a world that doesn't just seem lost, but broken. Uh, our recognition and commitment to these values uh, frees us in a new way to be clear witnesses of his grace and reflect uh, his character back into this world. Uh, this morning we read uh, from First Peter, that's the first letter that Peter wrote um, in the New Testament, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and we read this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this might be uh, seem like too obvious a statement, but light has always illuminated our world. That's what light does. Light illuminates. Despite my grandmother's promise that eating carrots would give me night vision, uh, <laughs> she did. She said, eat your carrots. You can see in the dark. And it, it never quite worked out. Uh, uh, light in this world frees us to see and interact with the world as we know it. When we wake up in the middle of the night and want to discover what's going on around us, whether the noise we heard was from a dream or one of the kids down the hall or something outside like a bear on the front porch, um, that's an example that doesn't work really anywhere else except here in this uh, community. Uh, the first thing we do in the dark is that we turn on a light. In those moments, our simple bedside lamp gives us soul-assuring clarity. Every person throughout human history who has ever faced the darkness of the night would understand the relief we feel when we finally switch the light or click on a flashlight or spark a match for a fire. Light's ability to illuminate our world is so crucial to our existence, it eventually became synonymous with knowledge itself. 
Now, we use, not, we use language reflective of light and darkness to describe education or how we learn. Learning banishes the darkness of ignorance. When we explain somebody has a good idea, what do we call it? We don't call it a turn off the lights moment. We call it a light bulb moment, right? Little light goes on above the head and the cartoons. When we explain, uh, uh, yeah, although not completely accurate, we describe eras of history where human progress has slowed or maybe even reversed course as what? We don't call them the light ages. We call them the dark ages. We call moments of scientific discovery the age of enlightenment. The foundation of scientific endeavor is rooted in the idea that we can use our minds to decipher and discern how this world works. That we can shine a light on the deepest mysteries of existence and discover the truth. For most of history, those who worked towards that kind of enlightening knowledge were simultaneously people of faith and logic, people of faith and reason. Uh, Blaise Pascal uh, was a mathematician, but also a deeply faithful uh, philosopher. I like his philosophy work much more than his mathematic work. That's just me. Arthur Compton, uh, he discovered that light behaves as a particle and a wave, was a deacon in his local Baptist church. Uh, Johannes Kepler, uh, his three laws of planetary motion remain a cornerstone of modern astronomy. And he firmly believed that God had created a perfect universe and that we cannot understand it without studying it. Gregor uh, Mendel, who was best known for cultivating new kinds of plants, discovered the fundamental principles of heredity and opened the door to a new field of genetics. Again, it was his faith that inspired him to learn how God had designed the natural world. John, uh, Isaac Newton, you know, Isaac Newton uh, revolutionized long-held assumptions about the physical world, uh, but he did that from a position of humility, seeing God as a masterful creator whose existence could not be denied in the face of the beauty of creation. In his famous epitaph of Newton, poet Alexander uh, Pope uses imagery of light and darkness to describe the magnitude of this one man's insight. Uh, He writes, nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be and all was light. Right. The pursuit of knowledge for a long time in human history was paired with the pursuit of the knowledge of God. Sadly, our culture today has this false assumption that there's a great conflict between science and faith. To many, uh, enlightenment equals escape from the religious superstitions that have held humanity back. Now, the danger of this argument uh, isn't uh, that that might happen and that might come true, that human knowledge might disprove the existence of God or negate the core beliefs of the church. That's not really the danger. Early believers recognized proclaiming Jesus had risen from the dead would sound absurd to people of that time. But they'd been convinced the resurrection happened so completely they were willing to risk their reputations and lives to share the good news with the world. They were willing to say that, yes, this is contrary to how the world works, but this is God working in the world anyway. 
People back then, before us, might not have known about electricity, but they also weren't bereft of wisdom or insight either. Now, the danger comes that when comes when we assume, when our generation assumes that we, the latest people to live on this planet, have a better understanding of what it means to be human than anybody else in history just because we have more knowledge about how the world works. Glenn Scrivener Scrivener summarizes the mindset uh, like this. He says, we reckon that we are the ones we've been waiting for. We we view history as merely the backstory for our own grand entrance. We believe that we are on the fertile foothills of human potential looking back on a barren wasteland. We are enlightened and reasonable because of our technology, but our ancestors were ignorant simpletons, unable to move past their superstitions. C.S. Lewis describes this self-proclaimed attitude of enlightenment as chronological snobbery, thinking that just because because we're the latest uh, means that we have the best understanding. In this framework, we're the best version of humanity simply because we have more scientific insight than our ancestors. But if we're honest, having more information about the world has not exactly brought us into some idealistic utopia. This world remains broken. Despite our advanced technology, we are more disconnected than ever. We can find answers to so many things. We can learn fact after fact after fact. In fact, uh, must, uh, we can learn that very quickly if we just pull out our phones and look it up on the internet. But we are no closer to answering those deeper questions of meaning. We might know how the world works, but we desperately struggle with the question of why. A dictionary defines many things, but it can't explain the existence of evil. Our knowledge doesn't give us the wisdom we really want or need, nor does it provide us with a clear glimpse of why we are here and what our purpose is. When we look around our world, just the opposite seems to have occurred. There is more disinformation than ever before. Declarations that sound true, but really aren't. Our cars, some of our cars, uh, not my car, but some of our cars can drive themselves, right? But where are we going? Where can we go to learn why we are here and what is our purpose? How can we be sure that we matter or that our life has made a difference to others? Even in the information age, those questions are still hard to answer. But Peter, in his letter, wants believers to recognize that Jesus provides an entirely different kind of enlightenment. Gaining knowledge of how this world works isn't wrong. Right, Great men and women throughout history have rightly pursued knowledge to faithfully honor our God. But to know anything about purpose and meaning, to make sense of the terrible tragedies and beautiful triumphs of human existence, we have to look beyond ourselves. For Peter and the earliest disciples, life only made sense in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because only that Only Jesus puts the world and humanity's place in it into 
perspective. In the Old Testament, darkness uh, represented chaos, only to be broken when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and created light. Darkness also marked the spiritual consequences of wandering away from Yahweh and the despair that comes from living in this broken world without the Lord's presence or guidance. For the Israelites and even the Romans, darkness measured the distance from God himself, a way to signify how far humanity had wandered from the truth. In darkness, humanity consistently fails to discern right from wrong, much less find the path back to the Lord who created them. For faithful Jews, the darkness was even more pervasive. The moment humanity first sinned, darkness that consumed uh, not just our world, but our hearts. On the other hand, uh, Peter and the Jewish people understood that light always flowed from God himself. While the darkness of sin led people away from God, the light of Yahweh's goodness and love led them back into relationship with him. David writes in Psalm 27 that the Lord is my light and my salvation. He writes in Psalm 119, 105, that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Even greater was a promise found throughout the prophets that God's Messiah would come and banish the darkness that had covered this world. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus uh, recognizes this. He even refers to himself. He refers back to the prophecies of Isaiah as justification for his own ministry. He says in John 8 that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Jesus, Peter sees an invitation to return to the light extended to people who are still walking in darkness. If we desire to know the answers to the deepest mysteries of this life, the only place we need or even can look is the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because when we meet Jesus, our entire life is bathed in a new light, the light of his grace and love. He shows us where we might have gone wrong. He shows us how we can go right C.S. Lewis uh, says it this way, I believe in Jesus Christ as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Peter sees that Jesus helps humanity not only to find their way home, but remember what it means to be truly human. And he does this uh, here. He reviews the entire history of God's people, and he sees the transformation Jesus began at the cross as fulfillment of an ancient promise that God made to his children during their uh, deliverance from Egypt. Back in Exodus 19, Yahweh makes a simple promise. If you obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter understands that Jesus is the one who makes that happen because Jesus banishes darkness. Because Jesus invites uh, God's children back into the light. Everything that had been spoken about Israel is fulfilled by Jesus and the church. The new people that he gathers upon himself, the living stone. 
Now, Peter's encouragement here uh, points not to a set of unrealistic commands, but a new way of life available through Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. Best of all, the enlightenment Jesus offers is not something that we gradually learn or even earn, but it is a gift that liberates God's children to be the kind of people he always intended here and now. Uh, In our scripture, uh, uh, Peter says um, there were people who ignored God, uh, ignored what they were destined for. Ignored what they were destined for. In Jesus, we become the people that we were always designed to be. Two aspects of this invitation help us understand how this enlightenment shapes our lives as believers in a world that remains so dark. So first is this. The invitation of Jesus into his marvelous light implicitly reveals how we will be changed. When Moses was exposed to God on the mountaintop, his face glowed simply because he was near the Lord. But Jesus invites us into a greater communion because the presence of God, the source of all light and truth and love and grace and beauty and joy comes to rest in the hearts of the faithful. God does not give us a flashlight to help us see in the darkness, but he places a blazing sun to shine in and through us. Peter uses the word marvelous to emphasize how amazing it is that God's presence will not just illuminate our world, but rest inside our very souls. This word is used only six times in our Bible. It's used three times in the Gospels in reference to Jesus. It's used once here and then twice again in Revelation. This word implies wonder beyond human comprehension. It's not just a very bright light. It's not just nice. It is marvelous. It is something so good that we can hardly comprehend it. The presence of God comes to live in his children is too wonderful to genuinely understand. But Peter says it happens anyway. That is the gift of Jesus as the gift that God gives through Jesus. Second, we are changed. This light comes to live in us, not just for ourselves, but for others. Now, the light of his glory doesn't just reflect off of us, but burns within us, illuminating us from the inside out. We are claimed by Jesus and remade by the Spirit, so we might proclaim the goodness of the one who brought us out of darkness. Our salvation has a greater purpose than our own rescue and transformation. Peter says we are designed, we are designed to share the excellencies we find in God with the world. We are transformed so every moment of our life might be a chance for God's mercy and grace his truth and glory to blaze into a world that is still lost in darkness. In Jesus, every believer, every believer becomes a window through which the light of God's kingdom shines. The enlightenment we find in Jesus does not just make us aware of the truth. It doesn't just make us aware of a fact but it remakes us from people that live in a land of darkness to people that shine like the sun. 
Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in the 18th century, um, wrote this about this particular passage. He says, genuine faith in Christ turns a man from darkness to marvelous light, transforms him into the light of the world. His aims and objects, his desires, his speech actions become full of divine light, which illuminates all the chambers of his soul and then pours from the windows so as to be seen by others. The believer is appointed to be a lighthouse, a cheering lamp, a guiding star to all who see them. It is true that his light will be increased as he learns more about Christ. He will impart more instruction to others when he has received more. But even while he is still a beginner, his faith in Jesus is in itself a light. Men see his good works before they discover his knowledge. Church in Jesus, the enlightenment that we experience is an ongoing internal process for our own benefit, but also the benefit of other people. We are literally, tangibly enlightened in Jesus. The light of God enters our hearts and we start to shine with the glory of God. So the whole world might see both the truth and the deep love of our gracious Father. Every day, every moment, we have a chance to model the goodness and beauty of God to a broken world still wandering in darkness. Every soul that calls on his name is a sunrise of his glory, chasing the darkness of this world into oblivion and ushering in a brilliant new day. We are called to step into the marvelous light so we might become children of light, always shining, illuminating the darkness. So today and every day, stand firm and shine. Hallelujah. Amen.